Information. She's full of it. Things to do, places to visit, and the stories behind the people in our community. That's a lot of information. Throw in a little news and pop culture. That's too much information. You have TMI with Teresa. What have I told you about over here? TMI with Teresa. We're all guilty of TMI. TMI. Thanks for joining me for this week's program. I'm really excited about it because I got to learn some really fun things about Kansas City. I am embarrassed to admit that I've lived here for 20 years now, and I just now was able to go to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for the very first time. I enjoy baseball. I love going to watch the Royals, but I'm not a huge baseball fanatic. And you're going to hear Dr. Raymond Doswell. He's the vice president and curator at the museum. You're going to hear him during our interview talk about how if you're a baseball fan, awesome. If you're not, it really is more about our history and so many cool things that being here in Kansas City, we can be really proud of. And also, they're going to have a lot of events to celebrate their centennial. We had a really great time walking around today. Thank you for inviting us here. This is such a great museum. My husband's a baseball fan, so he tagged along and he's helping me out today. And I learned so many things that I didn't know. I didn't know that there were women that played in the Negro Leagues. I didn't know. I mean, there's just so many things. Let's go back to the beginning because I know you are having a big centennial celebration. And I always wondered why is the museum here in Kansas City? And that's because back in 1920, it all began, right? So yes, thank you for the opportunity. In 1920, there was a meeting of independent black baseball team owners to organize a formal league structure meaning there were independent black baseball teams, mostly in the Midwest, but traveling all over the country, trying to book games, trying to get some stability. Unless you had a good deal of resources and connections, if you were a black baseball team, you're basically a traveling circus. If you didn't have these good connections to games, to opponents, black or white, you didn't have any stability. And without the stability, you could easily get out on the road, have some good games, but didn't lose out on some games because of rain or, or lack of scheduling, and you could disband very quickly. And in addition, there are a lot of teams that were very good. They always claimed that we're the, the colored champions. or No, we're the colored champions. We're the best team. No, we're the best team. You had to settle it on the field. So at the urging of members of the black press, these independent team owners came together which ultimately landed him in a meeting here in Kansas City at the old Paseo YMCA building to hammer out a league structure, a business structure, led by Andrew Foster, better known as Rube, who was a leader of the team in Chicago. Uh, He had a lot of business connections and became the league's first president. The the founding of the Negro National League, February 13th, 1920, at the YMCA building, which is just a few blocks away from us here at the museum here in Kansas City. You're building a Buck O'Neill, like a research education center. And is that the location where that's going to be? So the building has uh, significance to the community in a number of ways, not just because the meeting that was held there for baseball, but it was the African-American YMCA in the community because YMCAs were segregated. It has its own very unique history in that the community raised most of the money to build that building. Uh, So it served that purpose for many years until the 50s and 60s, and then it transferred over to another group before it was abandoned, and it had laid abandoned for over 70 years. 
So the museum made an effort to preserve the building because primarily because of its tie to our history, but it allows us as an institution to expand our services. And one of those services is to be able to offer our education and research services that we want to do. So preserving the building for its unique history and, of course, expanding our services is one of the goals of that. So we've been in the process for many years now, really the past uh, 10, 12 years, trying to clean up the building, restore the building and turn it into the education center. And it's been named for Buck O'Neill. You definitely need to come down here. You have to see it for yourself. I mean, I spent a lot of time in there, but there's so many things to read and little details that I'm sure you miss. Probably need to come several times to catch all of it. But I just want to talk a little bit about the actual Kansas City history. I knew it was a big deal that the meetings were here and I knew that Jackie Robinson came from the Monarchs. I didn't realize all of the influence. Like we learned about how the Negro Leagues had night baseball before mm-hmm. Major League Baseball did. So there are lots of things like that. Night was that base- actually the Monarchs, though, that were the first it, ones? It was the Monarchs who traveled with the portable lighting system, which they then there were other teams that had done that. But the Monarchs were traveling with the portable lighting system in the back of a truck. And keep in mind, this is 1929, 1930. Uh, we're at the beg- beginnings of the Great Depression. So a lot of people, black or white, couldn't really go to baseball games much because they're out looking for jobs. But for some people, as it was said in the Ken Burns baseball documentary, that the only food that some people got was the hot dog they'd buy at a ballpark that evening. So having night baseball allowed a team like the Monarchs to get more games, earn extra money, and to um, go to places that perhaps other teams couldn't go. So a portable lighting system, which had its quirks and, and intricacies, uh, still was something that was very popular among the fans. And yes, 1930, they played their first night baseball game and their first official night baseball game in Major League Baseball was 1935. Wow. And I also didn't realize that there was uh, the very first Negro Leagues World Series was the Monarchs. Yes, they were the first team against a team from Philadelphia area called Hilldale, which uh, were the first two teams to play in what would be called the Colored World Series which started a tradition of postseason tournaments after that. Uh, That series was a nine-game series. Actually, it was a 10-game series. One game was called Due to Darkness. It didn't have the lighting system yet. (laughs) Uh, But uh, um, the Monarchs won five games to four. And what was also unique about that was that they played in the Philadelphia area and they played in the Kansas City area for the two teams, but they also played in Chicago and they also played in Baltimore because those, those were places where they got great attendance during the season. So just imagine going to Union Station, traveling by train to Chicago to play a few games and then on to Philadelphia and then down to Baltimore, all by train, no buses yet. So that series took a couple of weeks to get done, but it uh, really set the path for what would be success later. Do you see a lot of players come in and out of here? Maybe if they're just visiting and they're playing, I know they're so busy when they come to town to play, but maybe if they're brand new to the Royals and they just moved to town or if they do have time when they're visiting, do you see players in and out? That happens. And not just baseball players, base, uh, some of the college basketball players, some of the pro football players, uh, as well as other celebrities, actors, actresses, politicians, the famous and the infamous do walk through the doors here at the baseball museum. But notably of the baseball players, sometimes teams are in town and they come with their media groups uh, for maybe a television appearance. And then sometimes they'll walk in just unannounced and they're with their families because they're traveling to Kansas City. What's always great, though, about when the groups come in with the media 
you know, ball players, they have a schedule where they sometimes sleep late until it's time to go to the ballpark. So they're up and they're wondering, well, what's going on here? This is baseball museum. But when they walk in, their eyes light up and then they see all this great information in the photos. I'm especially proud of when the Latino players come in because they don't always immediately get the connections, but there's strong connections between uh, Latino baseball and the Negro Leagues. And then they hear about players that they heard about when they were younger. And um, it's a great connection. They get it once they go through and they understand the importance of it. And you can hear it when they talk about it afterwards. It really is a beautiful museum. Um, and when we first arrived here, there were a couple of bunch of kids running around. I, I, I'm sure you get a lot of field trips and things like that. And it's so great that they can, I mean, not run around, but they were having fun. Like they were running around on the field that you have at the end of the exhibit. And they just seem to be having a good time. We don't encourage the running. <laughs> well, primarily because, as noted, uh, in the museum, uh, we have these on our mock field, we call it the Field of Legends, and there are bronze statues there. Many of them are uh, modeled after players in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So it's a wonderful centerpiece exhibit. And yes, it's so tempting to run around, but we don't want the young people to run into the statues because they don't move. So we don't encourage that. But they certainly can play baseball in slow motion. And it is for many people who go through the ideas that you walk through the museum, you look at all the photos, you live this history as these players did. And so then once you get to the field, you are supposed to really be moved and you get the whole experience. You've endured what they have endured to get to this place of honor. And we visitors tell us that's how they feel when they walk through. It is either eerie for them. It's emotional for them. And it's a great sense of pride for them to be able to to access that area. So uh, we're pleased with that. We're pleased that folks are moved when they go through the experience. And uh, that's what you hope for. And I know that you're privately funded and you rely on donations and um, support. And you got a big, big donation from Major League Baseball. Yes. Um, but in fact, this is their second large donation. It's a joint donation between baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association, the Players Union, for a gift of $1 million. It's significant, and we're very especially proud of the, the Baseball Players Association because they have a great appreciation for these men and women who have paved the way for their success. So there are a lot of museums where a million dollars is a great gift, but not necessarily a major gift. But for us, that goes a long way in helping us continue to do programming, continue to work on projects related to the YMCA project, and to be able to bring great exhibits like our temporary exhibit on the history of the Negro Leagues and art exhibit that we have in honor of the centennial. Yeah, let's talk about this. That's actually where we're sitting right now. How long is this going to be here for people to come and, and learn and enjoy? So this will be here through May 31st here in the Changing Gallery at 18th and Vine. We have what we're calling Black Baseball in Living Color. The primary artist is a man named Craig Kreinler. He has done what he calls color studies. There are over 200 color studies of individual Negro Leagues players, uh, which are set somewhat chronologically throughout the gallery, uh, going back to the 1800s, key players and officials uh, from the Negro Leagues, and it goes up to 1960. In addition, one of the other large uh, pieces or collections we have is these wonderful, beautiful art balls, as they are called, by artist Monty Sheldon. And they're really, they look like jewelry. They're hand-painted. They really do. They're hand-painted baseballs with intricate details about players and themes related to the Negro Leagues. They're 
well over 60 plus baseballs uh, that are here on display. And there are wonderful artifacts too. All of the art and in these particular artifacts are on loan from one man, a man named Jay Caldwell, who is a business partner of the museum. This is his personal collection. So we're, we are fortunate to have it here through May so folks can come down. This portion of the exhibition to see the museum is free to the public. Also, as part of the big centennial celebration, you're doing some special bobbleheads? Yes. So w- with Mr. Caldwell's um, company, Dreams Fulfilled, uh, he has designed and has put out a number of what he calls the Centennial Team bobbleheads, and they honor a group of players uh, who are considered some of the best in the Negro League. So those bobbleheads are on sale in the museum store and they include players like Satchel Page and Josh Gibson and Buck O'Neill, among others. And so they are pretty hot items. Uh, they're hard to keep in stock. So uh, if we don't have the one you want, you certainly want to call us back or come down. You can get those online at our website or come right here in the shop and get one. So to kind of recap the year just a little bit, some of the big highlights include our partnership with the Kansas City Royals, our annual salute to the Negro Leagues, uh, where they will be hosting the Los Angeles Dodgers this year. That's May 17th. Before that, in April, Jazz and Jackie, Jazz Concert in honor of Jackie Robinson. That is April 11th, Saturday before Easter. In June, we'll have what we call our Hall of Game Ceremony, which uh, where we honor former major league players in the spirit of the Negro Leagues. In August is our annual Hot Dog Festival, the Heart of America Hot Dog Festival. We get uh, six to 8,000 people out on Paseo listening to old school R&B and eating hot dogs and raising money for the museum. And that'll culminate into our gala, which we normally have an event in November, but November 14th is the official Centennial Gala, which is set for downtown Kansas City at the Midland, which should be a star-studded affair. I want to also point out, although not a formal event per se here at the museum, but as part of the announcement with Major League Baseball, it's significant to note that Major League Baseball on June 27th all teams will honor the Negro Leagues by wearing our Centennial patch on their regular uniforms. This is a big deal. This has not happened before where Major League Baseball has honored the Negro Leagues in this large way. And so uh, if you're going to the ballpark anywhere in the country that day, including here in Kansas City, they will be honoring the Negro Leagues that day, uh, in addition to other Negro League celebrations that are happening in Major League and Minor League Baseball. Let's talk about membership. We welcome, of course, monetary donations from people. And of course, you can come to special events, but the museum does have a a membership program and we can encourage a lot of people, whether you live here in Kansas City or not, to become a member of the museum. Your financial contributions help support exhibits and programs for young people, as well as adult programming here at the museum, traveling exhibitions as well. Memberships start as low as $25. You get some premiums, a newsletter. Uh, You can keep in touch with what's happening here with the museum and also activities around the country. So membership, you can sign up online or we can mail you a membership form as well as uh, some simple uh, ways to join online through text to give as well as our Facebook operations. So you can come in, support us, join us and be a part of this history. Just in closing, what do you want to say to, because we have people that listen that are outside of Kansas City, people, if they're not aware that this special museum is even here, What's the big takeaway that you want people to know about? Well, a few things. One, you don't have to be a baseball fan to come and enjoy this. In fact, I would encourage your non-baseball fans to come because it's American history and it's your history. And maybe it focuses specifically on African-American and Latino history, but it's your history. 
it is more enhanced for you if you are a baseball fan in that you can learn a lot more about baseball history than perhaps you never knew. But using this platform to understand our country, we think is a great entree into general understanding of each other and uh, a way of starting maybe what might be difficult conversations about race and, and things like that. These men and women were able to overcome certain obstacles. And uh, there are lots of lessons for everyone to learn, not just young people, but for all learners to come in and check this out. And hopefully you'll have a good time and be moved by the experience as well. Big thanks again to Dr. Raymond Doswell. He was so great. I really was fascinated by all of the little details that I just didn't even know about the Negro Leagues and all of the things that our Kansas City Monarchs were first to do. For more information, you can go to nlbm.com. Coming up here in about a week, we are going to have the Professional Bull Riders and World Champions Rodeo Alliance in Kansas City. They are going to have a whole weekend of stuff, February 28th through March 1st at the Sprint Center. It's going to be the WCRA Royal City Roundup on Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday will be the PBR Unleash the Beast. And I'm getting ready to talk to Missouri native Brady Sims. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You're uh, born and raised in Missouri? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, about uh, 20 miles north of Kansas City there. Do you still have family in town? Yes. Yep, I sure enough do. I still live up there, too. Oh, you do? But you probably, yeah. you're on the road a lot, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're I'm on the road definitely more than I'm home. Tell me about how you got into the world of rodeo. I was looking through your bio and I saw something about you being on a sheep when you were little. Is that actually how people learn to ride a bull? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody is a little bit different, you know, but yeah, that's how I ended up learning. A buddy of mine actually, oh, I'd have been like four or five. He was like, you know, hey, man, you want to go to a mutton busting? And I didn't know, you know, I have a clue what it was. And I was like, yeah, sure. Sounds great. And, uh, you know, I, I got on that sheep and, and shoot the first little run out of the shoot. I just, I fell right off. I tumbled right off the back of him, right onto my head, got up crying and been with it ever since. <laughs> Was it hard for you to get back on? I mean, did you have a good cry or you just pretty much got over it and then had no fear? Yeah, I pretty much got over it pretty quick. I mean, it was, it was kind of one of them deals where I think it just surprised me because I really wasn't for sure what was going on, you know, but after that, I was like, man, I was actually pretty fun, you know, come to think of it. So how old were you when you seriously started competing? Well, I mean, you know, even in youth rodeo and all that kind of stuff, you still are competing, you know. It's it's pretty much the uh, the same guidelines as, as anywhere else. But, I mean, I would say probably whenever I was about 13, 14, I kind of stepped up and started going with uh, – Oh, some of the bigger name guys that either used to be on the PBR tour or, you know, they were they were in between events and would stop by some of these events that I'd be going to. And it was actually, you know, big bulls and stuff. And and uh, that's probably whenever I really started figuring out that I could ride bulls pretty good. And, and then I thought, you know, well, shoot, if I could ride them here. I was like, let's go ahead and just keep working at it and keep trying at it, and we'll, we'll eventually end up on the PBR. Now, is it true that your father was a professional baseball player? Uh, he was in the minor leagues, yes. Okay. Did he ever try and encourage you and, and steer you towards baseball, or did he just know, you know what, that's not his thing? Uh, you know, I mean, I played I played all the sports. I, I was really good at baseball. I was really good at football, basketball, track. I was really good at all of them, and I don't think, I mean, I, there's not one time I can sit here and think that my dad was trying to make me do anything. I mean, he's always been always been supportive of the bull riding deal, you know, and he, he never did anything in rodeo or, or bull riding or nothing, which, I mean, you know, he had cattle and did the, 
did the uh, 4-H stuff, you know, and the horse shows and all that. But, I mean, as far as, like, actually competing in rodeo and that, he, he never did that. But I think uh, I think he just, you know, knows and realizes, like, how competitive that I am and, and that I think the reason why uh, I was so attracted to bull riding is because that was the only sport that I wasn't any good at, you know. <laughs> and that's I think that was kind of the competitive side of me coming out that was sitting there saying, you know what, I'm I'm going to figure this crap out because I, I don't like losing, you know. So I think uh, I think that was also one one reason why my dad never never tried to push me away from it because, like I said, I mean he understands the he understands being competitive and wanting to go win, and that's kind of where I was wanting to go. So you've been all over the world. Uh, looks like recently Australia and different places. What is it like when you go to other countries? Because I I guess I've just always thought that. The, the traditional idea of a cowboy and the cowboy hat and our boots and, you know, rodeo was more of a, an American thing. So what's it like when you go overseas? Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, there's, there's cowboys all over the world. I can guarantee you that much. And, you know, shoot, I've been to Mexico, Canada, uh, Australia, and then, uh, hopefully going to Brazil here in, uh, in May or June or whichever one it is. But yeah, I mean, that day, they welcome you with open arms, you know, and I think everybody else, too, at the same time, like whenever you go to other countries, what everybody always thinks of is just like what you're talking about, you know, the American cowboy. And and it kind of gives that different atmosphere, I guess, whenever you're over there, like they're they're all for it. You know what I mean? They're, they're like, wow, that's just, you know, amazing. And hey, can we get a picture? Hey, you know, how is it being a cowboy from America? You know, this and that. So it's always it's always welcoming whenever you whenever you go to like especially Mexico or Australia. I mean they're 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 all about it. You know what I mean. So tell me a little bit about this event coming up. What exactly is Unleash the Beast? What can we expect? Well, it is going to be the top thirty five bull riders in the world, the entire world, and then it's going to have the top thirty five bull. Well, not top thirty five. It's actually going to have there'll be about a hundred bulls there next weekend. So it'll have the top hundred bulls in the world and. It's going to be nonstop action. It's a great family show. I mean, it's going to be pyro. There's going to be booms and flames and, you know, sparklers and all that stuff. And then there's going to be an entertainer. So in case there's ever a dead spot in there, like if we've got a bull that's not ready to leave yet, or if heaven forbid, you know, somebody gets hurt, then he'll, he'll keep the crowd entertained. And, and while, you know, that, that dead spot's going, then we've got, the best three bullfighters in the world, in my opinion, that are going to be out there protecting us and the best guy horseback, you know, the safety man. So it's just, it's pretty much what it, the simplest way to put it is it's a rock show with bull riding on the side. Now um, on Friday night, is that a little bit different kind of an event? Yes, it is actually. That is the WCRA. That is uh, the world champions rodeo Alliance. And that'll be, that'll be a full rodeo. It'll have eight events. I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll have, uh, bareback riding, saddle bronc riding, team roping, calf roping, barrel racing, breakaway roping, steer wrestling, bull riding. It'll have all the events on Friday, and it's 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 a heck of a show too. I mean, don't get me wrong, because it's going to be uh, the top fifteen. I'm pretty sure is what the number is, top fifteen in the world, and all those standings too. So, I mean, it's it's going to be pretty interesting on Friday night, just as well. Growing up, did you ever try any of those other rodeo events, or was it always bull riding? Uh, you know, I, I did, but I, uh, you know, they just didn't do nothing for me. I mean, they they uh, they weren't near as adrenaline pumping, I guess, as as the bull riding was. You know, I've I've tried the roping, and I mean, I was decent at it, but like I said, it just after you've been on bulls for so long, it was kind of boring to me. Now, do you do they still do it where it's kind of a random draw to see which bull you get? 
Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all computer drawn. And, uh, the first two rounds will be computer drawn there at Kansas city. And then the short round, which will be the top 15 scores, uh, over the last two rides combined that weekend. Uh, whenever you go into the short round, you actually get to pick your bulls. So for the, for the random drawing, is there a certain bull that nobody wants? Um, no, no. I mean, not that I can, not that I can think of right offhand. You know, I mean, they they always bring bulls to these PBR deals that you can go win on, and I I think uh, I think everybody understands. You know that if you're on the if you're on the PBR, you've got you've got the ability for sure to ride about anything they run underneath you. So I don't think any of us really have that mentality of hoping to dodge nothing. What is this? is it okay to ask? Uh, like your worst injury? Uh, yeah. I mean, heck, we get we get that quite a bit. Uh. I would say probably my worst one that I could that I could think of was uh, whenever I broke my leg back in uh, 2017. That was probably that was probably one of the worst ones I've had to go through. But it was, you know, heck, it's it's uh, it's all good now. We got a rod and it. it ain't going nowhere. Oh my goodness! Do you and you make the the alarms go off at the airport? <laughs> no, no. Thankfully, it's titanium, so it doesn't even <laughs> it doesn't go off. Well, awesome. I know that you guys have a few other things leading up to uh, when you get here to Kansas City. So I wish you the best in all of that and uh, travel safely. And we can't wait to see you when you guys get to the Sprint Center. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having us. Big thanks again to Brady Sims. You can see him and all of his professional bull riding rodeo colleagues at the Unleash the Beast and the Royal City Roundup coming up February 28th through March 1st. Go to SprintCenter.com or the Sprint Center box office. Thanks for listening to TMI with Teresa. Production and voice imaging by DJ Sod and Connor Quinn. Get episode updates and read Teresa's blog at TMIWithTeresa.com. Oh.